kind of a foretaste of what we'll be able to do in heaven, singing praise to the Lamb. Kids, you are dismissed for Children's Church. And for those of us staying in here, let's take our Bibles. We will turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 13. As we come to this text, we find Mark sharing with us the continuing ministry of our Lord. And you know, Jesus had a mission when He came into this world, and that mission was to share the truth and to live it out in our midst. He is the greatest revelation of God's truth to ever come. He perfectly exhibited what it is to live the truth of God through His words and through His actions. And we're called to do the same as followers of Jesus Christ. But during His ministry, as He was bringing the truth of God to us, there were many in the religious community who weren't willing to receive what He had to share. In fact, they they resisted it. You see, they were guilty of worshiping their own standards and rejecting the truth that was embodied in Christ Jesus. They worshiped their standards above the truth, so therefore, they're what we would call legalists. Now, what is a legalist? A legalist, by definition, is someone who takes standards that aren't directly given in the Word of God, or they misapply commands that we find in the Word of God, and they embellish on them. They try to add their own standards to what God has called us to do, and they set that above all else. Their standards had become so important to them, these legalists, these religionists of Jesus' day, that they couldn't see the truth embodied before them in the person of Jesus Christ. So this morning, as we go through this text, we're going to see the importance of knowing the truth of God, discerning the truth of God, and making sure that we don't take legalistic standards and uphold them in such a way that we miss the very truth of God. Now, all of us have an idea about legalists. Have you ever noticed when you drive, anybody who drives faster than you is a maniac, and anyone who drives slower than you is a moron? Well, it sort of works that way with legalism. Anybody who's stricter than you is a legalist, and anyone who's a little looser than you is a liberal. We need to understand that what we really need to do is understand who Jesus is, what he has said, and follow the truth that Jesus has given us. That's what makes us right with God. Not finding a list that we can judge others by, but finding who Jesus is, what he has commanded, and following, loving Jesus, seeking to know him and develop our relationship with him. That's where we need to be. Now, as we come to this text, we find that Jesus demonstrates to us the importance of demonstrating love to the lost. And what we find is that in demonstrating this love to the lost, he was seeking to reach them. Look at the 13th verse. And notice as this text begins that we're going to encounter someone that many of us would have considered so far gone he wouldn't be worth even reaching out to. 
His name is Levi, and we're going to meet him in a few moments. But first, look at the 13th verse. Jesus went out to be by the lake. We find the first sentence there in that 13th verse. You see, Jesus was consistently going off to be by himself after he had ministered to recharge his spiritual batteries, to commune with the Father. And so Jesus goes off by himself and he goes out beside the lake and what happens? As that 13th verse continues, we see a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. Jesus was finding solitude, but people sought him out to find him. And rather than saying, I want to be alone, what did Jesus do? He reached out to the crowd. He shared with them. They were coming to hear the Word of God, and He was more than willing to give it. He shared the Word of God. But then as we go on into the 14th verse, we see this. And as He walked along, He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, for us, we look at this and say, oh, isn't that quaint? He's walking along. He's teaching. People are listening. He sees a man sitting in a tax collector's booth, and he says, follow me. Now, we don't really understand the place of the tax collector, how they were viewed by the Jewish society. We're not excited about the IRS or what it does to us, but if you know that somebody works for the IRS, you don't necessarily think that they're the scum of the earth. When we look into the first century, people hated and ostracized the tax collector, and here's why. People viewed tax collectors as sellouts. They were either collecting taxes for Rome or for Herod, and so when people had to pay taxes through this person who volunteered to collect them, and very often was corrupt, and very often was a person who was taking advantage of people. You see, they could charge more than the going rate for taxes and pocket the rest. People had a deep-seated mistrust and hatred for these people. So what happened? They ostracized them. When you read about tax collectors in the first century, they were put out of the synagogue. They brought shame to their family when they would agree to become a tax collector. So society as a whole considered them to be so corrupt such money grubbers, that they wanted nothing to do with them at all. They rejected them out of hand. So who does Jesus go to? He goes to Levi, a tax collector, and he invites him to follow him. Now another interesting dynamic. When we look at Levi, we see that Levi was collecting taxes and Jesus was walking along the lake. So many Bible scholars believe this, that Probably Levi was a tax collector collecting taxes off of fishermen. See, a part of what tax collectors did was they would locate themselves, and there were hefty taxes on fishermen. They would tax the fish that they caught, and they would collect income. So think about this for a moment. You have Peter and Andrew, John and James, all fishermen. So what happens? Jesus calls someone who would have probably been taxing these very men and invites them to be a follower. Can you imagine the response that Peter and the rest of them had when they see Jesus calling the guy who had been taxing them and making their life miserable? They must have responded in such a way that 
that we wouldn't be surprised. They would be frustrated. They might be questioning, but certainly there would be an interesting dynamic there. So what happens? Jesus calls Levi, and he invites him to follow him. Probably someone that the rest of the disciples that had been called to that point would have said, there's no chance this person will ever follow the Lord. He's too unscrupulous. Also, somebody that most of the community would have looked at and said, hey, here's a person who's so corrupt, so far gone, have nothing to do with them. But this is who Jesus reached out to. And wonder of wonders, look at the response. Jesus says, follow me, in verse 14, and a very simple statement. And Levi got up and followed him. Now think about what Levi was giving up. He was already rejected by society. And by the way, once you become a tax collector and you say, I'm no longer going to collect taxes, that doesn't mean that everybody says, well, then welcome back, right? You have been messing them over for a number of years. They remember that. So the community isn't going to say, oh, great, Levi reformed. Also consider this. The people that he collected the taxes for weren't going to be terribly excited. They have to go and find somebody else. But most of all, think of Levi. Levi left a lucrative business to follow Jesus Christ. Now that makes a statement about where his commitment was, doesn't it? He didn't balk, he didn't complain, he didn't question, he immediately left the tax booth and followed Jesus Christ. He believed, and it influenced the way he lived. And that's something that we see as a pattern here in the book of Mark that's important for us to understand. Belief causes you to do something. It produces in you a feeling of commitment. If you are uncommitted to something, you don't believe it. But if you believe something, it produces in you a desire to be committed. And that's evidenced so clearly by the life of Levi. I want you to think about something else, too. Here is a person rejected by society, a person the religionists would have looked at and said, there is a person that's unredeemable. There is a person who will never come to faith. There is a person who is so wicked so rotten, they're always going to stay on the outskirts. They'll never be one of us. How did he respond to Jesus Christ? Left everything and followed him. Then you have the religionists. The ones who lived by the rules. The ones who taught others how to live by the rules. The ones who perceived themselves to be so righteous, so good. And they did what to Jesus? Rejected him. Isn't it interesting how as we look on the outside and we try to guess what might happen with somebody, in reality, we never know. Jesus can take people and transform them when they place their faith in him. And Levi is a perfect example of someone who did this. It shares with us that there's hope for everyone. That anyone who turns to Jesus can find forgiveness. Jesus came to save sinners. But then we go on in the text. And we find that 
Jesus not only drew Levi to himself, but he was willing to draw the rejected to the gospel by reaching out to them. Look at what we find as we come to the 15th verse, and it says this, While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, the first part of this verse, the NIV translates this, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house. Literally, what we find in the original language is this, while Jesus was having dinner at his house. We don't know whose house it was. It could have been Levi's house, but there's even the possibility, some commentators pointed out, that it was at the house that Jesus had been staying at. Jesus could have invited these sinners into his home. And in a way, that would be even more shocking, wouldn't it? that Jesus would invite sinners into his house, the place that he was staying, in order to reach out to them. In a way, it would be easier to go to Levi's house because he always hung out with tax collectors and sinners. But for Jesus to invite them into his own, quite a different story. We're not sure which is which, but here's the bottom line. Jesus was fellowshipping, associating with tax collectors and sinners, those who had been rejected by society. Jesus is there interacting with them. Now let's talk again about these tax collectors and sinners. When we find the term sinner in this text, the NIV does a good job of translating this because notice it puts air quotes or quotation marks around sinners. And here's the idea. These people weren't necessarily what we might think of as sinners. The hardened. Those who were just terrible, wanton sinners. Prostitutes and murderers and all of the the, the gamut that we could run on what we think of when we think of somebody that might be a hardened sinner. Some of them perhaps were. But this is also being written from the Pharisees' perspective as to what they considered sinners. Notice, it's the Pharisees who bring up to him, hey, you're eating with sinners and tax collectors. And what the Pharisee considered to be a sinner was anyone who didn't follow their long list of rules. If you're not one of them, you're a sinner. And you know that mindset isn't just in the first century. Isn't it easy to develop that same outlook on people? To not see them as people with needs, but to see them as someone different than us and therefore worthy to be rejected. As believers, we need to be careful that the mindset of the Pharisee doesn't creep into our own thinking. To where we don't reach out to those around us because they're different. You know, it's so much more comfortable to hang out with people who are like-minded. And frankly, even some of those get on my nerves. (laughs) But to reach out to somebody who's radically different, wow, that's doing something. That's something way different than what had been done under the Pharisee system. And so, notice, Jesus is associating with them, he's eating with them, and There were many who followed him. But then we come to the 16th verse. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, 
They asked his disciples, why does he eat with the tax collectors? You see, they didn't want to be associated with them. There was no interest whatsoever in reaching out to them because as far as the Pharisees and the scribes were concerned, these people were lost causes. They're not one of us. They never will be one of us. So why would we have anything to do with them? There was a caste system. And you know, I didn't really understand the Eastern concept of a caste system until I went to India. In India, there are castes that are established. And basically, once you find yourself in one of those castes, you do not change. There's no upward mobility. You are what you are. And if you're in the lowest caste, the untouchables, you remain an untouchable. Now, in our culture, it's exciting because there's always that hope that we'll go from rags to riches. But in a caste system, it's rags to rags. You and your family stay who and what you are. It's always the same. And you know that caste mentality had crept into the Pharisees and the scribes. And that caste mentality can creep into us as well. We can look at people, pigeonhole them, and say that's what they are and that's what they will be. And we'll just leave them alone. God wants us to reach out. God wants us to have a heart for those who are different from us. God wants us to model what Jesus did in reaching out to the rejected, embracing them as those who are worthy of life as well in Christ Jesus. Notice the last part of this paragraph here. As these Pharisees are interacting with Jesus, they ask him a question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you think the Pharisees were asking the disciples this question in earshot of Jesus Christ? It was meant to intimidate the Lord. And that brings us to our next point. We need to deny religionists the power to stop our mission. When you look at the intimidation factor that the Pharisees and the scribes were trying to employ on Jesus Christ, what they were doing is this. They were saying, you have been wrong. He was trying to erode the confidence that the followers of Jesus Christ had in Jesus because he wasn't following what had always been done, the tradition that had been a part of their life, all of their life. So they're trying to intimidate Jesus and they're trying to stop his mission. You know, that's exactly what judgmental legalists do. They look at someone who is serving Christ and they seek to intimidate by saying to us, I'm judging you and I'm judging you wrong. And many of us fold when that happens. Listen. God wants us to be people who reach out to the lost and to the needy. Look at verse 17 and look at Jesus' response to these judges. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. You know what Jesus was saying to these people? I came to save sinners. 
So it's not someone who's spiritually healthy that needs me. It's someone who is spiritually sick that needs me. And what he's saying to them is this. These people have spiritual need. And I've come that they might respond. You know, it's so important for us to understand that God saves sinners. But it's also important for us to understand this. None of us should view ourselves as righteous at any point. Do you know that the Pharisees and the scribes that Jesus was talking to were spiritually sick as well? They needed to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, but they couldn't recognize it. You know why? They looked at themselves and they said, I dot all the right I's, I cross all the right T's, I'm doing all the right spiritual stuff, so therefore, I don't really need a doctor because I'm not spiritually sick. But you know the tragedy of it? They were. They were spiritually sick. They needed to know Jesus because none of our human righteous acts can in any way make us spiritually well. It's only through Jesus Christ that we find the answer to our needs. It's only in Him that we will come into a relationship with the Father. And so when Jesus says right at the last part of this, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners, He's making a profound statement. The only way I will ever get right with God is to recognize that I'm a sinner. That I'm not righteous in and of myself and never can be. I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. The forgiveness that only Jesus Christ offers. Let me say this. If you are counting on finding God's favor by the things that you do, you're spiritually sick. You need to come to the place to where you acknowledge where you are, a sinner that needs forgiveness. We all start at the same place recognizing our need and coming to God to find the fulfillment of that need. And so Jesus is offering this relationship with Him, forgiveness. All they need to do, believe and repent. And they will have that relationship with the Father. Now as we continue in this text, we come to another story. And this story is found in verses 18 through 22. And this is a story about fasting. And we learn some important lessons in this story that have to do with the first story. And that is this. As followers, we need to dedicate ourselves to God and not the traditions of men. And what we're going to find is doing things just because others do them is certainly not righteous living. Look at the 18th verse. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that Jesus' disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees, excuse me, John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now, once again, what do we find? We find a question about what Jesus is doing, and it's meant to intimidate Jesus and his disciples. Here the intimidation is, join us and do what we're doing. And if you don't do what we're doing, then you're not spiritual. That's the statement that's being made. 
Now what we find about fasting is really fascinating when we look in the scripture. In the Old Testament, there was one day that was prescribed for people to fast, and that was the Day of Atonement. It was a sign of repentance. And it was a statement to people that I'm a sinner, that I have sinned, and I am readying myself spiritually. Now, on the other days of fasting, that was up to the individual between them and God. There's nothing wrong with fasting. But the Pharisees had developed a type of fast where they were required to fast twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. And so for the Pharisees, it was no longer about God. It was about following the rules, doing the prescribed fast. And what you would find is the Pharisees would let everyone know when they were fasting. There was no doubt about it. They would put on long faces. They would carry themselves in a very solemn manner. And everyone knows how spiritual I am by the way I behave. I'm fasting. They wanted people to see because they weren't doing it for God. They were doing it for one another. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put on oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Powerful words from our Lord. Look, doing spiritual things, rituals, there's nothing wrong with an outward demonstration of an inward faith, but that outward demonstration of the inward faith should be toward God not toward everyone else. The Pharisees were confused by this. And so they imposed this standard, fast every Monday and Thursday on people. It's not in Scripture, but it was in their set of rules, and they were imposing their legalism, their legalistic standards on those around them. And it ceased to be about God, and it was all about their system. And listen, we should never worship a system. We have to worship God. God wants to see what's on our heart. God wants to see that when we worship Him, it comes from a true heart. Look at the groups mentioned here that were fasting. You have two groups. The followers of John the Baptist. Now, perhaps they were fasting because John had been imprisoned at this point. So their fasting was a fasting of prayer, and that's fine. If they choose to fast to pray that John would be released, or if they're mourning because they're sad because John has been captured, that's fine. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, ritualistic, religionists, they did it so that they could impress one another. And listen, our relationship with God should never be about how others feel about my relationship with God. It's about my relationship with God. And that's important for us to grasp. So here are these people, they're, they're, they're coming and, and they're impressing upon Jesus' disciples that they're not going along with the program. And then we come to the 19th verse. 
And what we find is this. Deciding to perform a ritual should have a spiritual reason. Look at Jesus' response in verses 19 and 20. How can the guests of a bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Now let's talk about this for a moment. Jesus uses an illustration, and he does that a lot in his teaching. And this illustration is one that really pictures for us the idea of rejoicing in the presence of the Lord. For Jesus' disciples, it made no sense to fast because God with us is in their midst. They're fellowshipping with the Lord Jesus Christ. What do they have to fast about? They have the presence of the bridegroom represented by Jesus Christ. So it would be inappropriate for them to fast at this point is what Jesus is saying. Now, picture this for a moment. You have a wedding. Now, wedding is to be a time of rejoicing, a time of celebration. It's a happy time. Suppose in your wedding, somebody walks in and they have dark dress on, a dark veil. They're weeping. They're sad. Maybe it's your mother-in-law. And here you are facing this person who should be rejoicing. And they're weeping. How does that make you feel? Not very joyful, right? You see, there's a joy that should be there for those who are in the presence of the Lord. And certainly as believers, there's nothing wrong with rejoicing in the presence of the Lord. We should rejoice. Some people have this caricature of Christians that you have to be all solemn and somber all the time. And if you're not solemn and somber, then you're not spiritual. You know, when I was in seminary, I know this is probably hard for you to believe, but I I joked around a lot. I uh, had one-liners in class, terrible puns. I've grown out of that, thankfully. And... One particular day, a rather somber brother in our class came up to me and said, Rob, you're never going to be a pastor unless you learn to be more serious. (laughs) Interestingly, a couple of days after that, our prof said, guys, you need to learn to lighten up. (laughs) And I just looked over at him and smiled, you know. (laughs) You getting that? (laughs) But listen, there's a joyfulness that we should have in the presence of the Lord. And so Jesus is saying to those who are fasting, they're rejoicing in my presence. But there's going to come a time where they won't. The bridegroom is going to be taken away. And they're going to see on that day that he's gone. And they will grieve. So what Jesus is saying to these people is this. Look, fasting to fulfill a religious obligation is wrong and out of place. If you're just doing a religious obligation so that those around you will look and say, okay, we can check that off our list. He's just done that. 
then you're doing it for the wrong reason. And you know, when I think of this, I think of a parable Jesus told in the Gospel of Luke. Take a moment, leave your finger here in Mark, and turn just one book past this to Luke chapter 18. And we're going to look at verses 10 through 14. It's a parable that I'm sure will be familiar to you. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And when we come to really the ninth verse, we see this. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus wanted these people to understand that there must be a purpose behind the spiritual things that you do. And if you're not doing spiritual things for a spiritual purpose, they're useless. Final part of the passage. If we don't dedicate ourselves to God rather than the traditions of men, we're going to find that we destroy what we're doing and what God is doing in us when we try to merge the old covenant with the new one. And let's look at this text and try and gain insight as to what Jesus says. He gives two more illustrations, starting in verse 21. And what he says is this, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, and if he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear even worse. What Jesus is talking about in this text is a great illustration. If you have a new garment, you don't cut a piece off of the new garment and sew it onto the old garment in hopes of patching the old garment. And so what Jesus is saying to these people by this illustration is this, look, I didn't come to reform the old covenant. I came to fulfill it and replace it. And just as you wouldn't take a patch of new material taken from a new garment and put it on an old one to fix the old one, I'm not here to fix the old covenant. I'm here to bring something totally new. What happens if you try to merge the old covenant and the new covenant? They're both ruined. The new covenant says salvation is by grace. God giving us salvation freely that we have not earned. And we receive that grace by faith. Now if I try to merge that by saying, yes, I receive salvation by faith in what God has freely provided through grace. And I try to merge that with, and I also have to do this and this and this and this and this in order to keep the old covenant as well. I've ruined both of them. So that's Jesus' illustration to the Pharisees. Don't think of me as a reformer. But understand that I am God's promised one who has come here to replace 
what you've perpetuated. Now, that was not what they wanted to hear, right? They were entrenched in that old system. They were saying, hey, I want to hold on to this. Because this is where my power is. This is where my prestige is. And, and you're coming to shake things up. I don't like that. But Jesus is saying it doesn't work to try and meld the two. And you know, there's a message for us in this, isn't there? Don't try and hold on to the things that you need to let go and hold on to your faith. Because you ruin both. You're going to feel guilty in the things that you shouldn't do. And you're going to have your faith and your conscience tweaked by trying to compromise. Truth does not have a compromise. It is truth or it is not. And so Jesus was saying, I'm here to share that truth. And look at his second illustration, that of wine, new wine into old wineskins. The Scripture says in verse 22, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. And if he does, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Here's the illustration. When you place wine into a wineskin, it's to allow for the fermentation process. And guess what happens? As that wine ferments, it expands. The gases from the fermentation process stretch the wineskin. So you know what happens? You empty the wineskin, and you say, that was such a good wineskin, I think I'm going to do it again. And this time, lo and behold, I can pour more wine into it because it's bigger. But you know what's going to happen? Because it has reached its stretching point, it isn't going to stretch anymore. So as that fermentation process begins again, you know what happens? It reaches the breaking point and pop. And there goes the wine, and there goes the wineskin, both ruined. And this is what Jesus is illustrating to the disciples. Look, I didn't come to reform. I came to replace. We're not here to try an extension of the old covenant. We're here with something new. And what is new is me. Believe on me. Repent and believe. And you will find salvation. Important messages that we find here in the book of Mark. Messages that remind us that we live for God. We live to know Jesus in a deeper and fuller and more intimate way. That's our purpose as followers of Jesus Christ, to know Him, to follow Him. Don't allow religious rituals that you've learned apart from the Scripture to replace what God alone has for you. Turn to Jesus Draw upon His strength and resources. Grow in Him. That's the key to following Christ as we should. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for this text. We thank You for the reminder that it is to us that we are to be followers of Christ. Not man-made rules, not man-made ideas, but Christ alone. Let us be effective in our following, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.